platform. You didn't tell me about that, Buck whined. Do I have to tell you every time it happens, shit joshed? Still, Buck was a little hurt. So we walk in, Dick continued, and there's two nuns and another woman. Not a nun, but, you know, nun-like. And they were all real nervous that we were going to say something improper or do something like, Christ, I don't know, get naked or something. Why did they book you in the first place, Fat asked. Oh, no, shut up, Dick said quickly, but then smiled at his idolater. Anyway, they didn't want us anywhere near the girls, so right away they hustled us down into this underground rec room with a lot of pictures of Jesus on the walls and a ping-pong table. Jesus loved ping-pong. He invented that Chinese grip Buck offered. Although for some reason he's better known for other things, Shit added. They had ping-pong leagues back then, the National and the Aramaic chink-topped with, to no one's surprise, the better joke. Anyway, Dick Track, they put us down there and tell us to stay put until it's time to do the show. The boys were laughing already because they knew the punchline. I had to, Shit smiled, and everyone nodded sympathetically, as one might for a more normal addiction, like gambling or defecating on glass coffee tables. But I didn't have to, Dick shouted with a big laugh, except now I'm the only one with my clothes on, so... Peer pressure, Buck said. Exactly. I mean, hey, what, am I going to not get naked? No. So then the two nuns and the other chick come back, and these boneheads are playing ping-pong... Naked, Fat asked. Have you been listening to this story, Shit asked him. Yeah, naked, Dick scolded Fat. Naked, okay? We were naked. This is a naked story. We're naked. And then the nuns come in. The nuns were not naked. Did I make that clear? And they see two guys playing ping pong, and their dicks are flopping around, and I'm standing on a chair over the net like I'm judging. Everybody howled at that. Then Fat asked, who won? More howling. More big passenger-alarming howling, which made the conductor come by, and he was howling mad. But Shit had talked his way out of nakeder spots than this, and he toddled off to the bathroom to get dressed. When he returned, though, Shit was in a decidedly fouler mood than when he'd left, which may have been due to the restrictedness of clothing or just because he liked descending into fouler moods. Mind if I eat while you smoke, he snarled at Dick and Buck, who had lit up just as shit removed the foil on his Amtrak microwaved lunch? Easy, pal, said Buck. God, you're as ornery as... as a man stuck for a metaphor, shit countered. Boy, you're in a mood, the normally apolitical chink interposed. What's eating you? Comedy, boys. Comedy is eating me alive. With that, the others sang out in ridicule of shit, condemning him for the negative attitude he was now imposing upon their jolly sojourn. They all liked to perpetuate the myth amongst themselves, and especially among civilians, that they were special members of society by virtue of their exemption from all accoutrements of the rat race. Alarm clocks, regular hours, long days, bosses, offices, or the need to concentrate on anything for more than a few seconds. They wore the deadly sin of sloth like a badge of honor, and they relished the chance run-in with childhood friends who'd listen, mouth agape, to the description of a life comprised of recess. But shit wasn't buying it today. He bullishly pressed on with a discussion of reality. We're being exploited, he said. They're filling that room every night of the week, getting a five-dollar cover and a two-drink minimum, and we're getting cab fare. Shit was referring to the club, the premier Manhattan showcase on the Upper East Side, where the boys were among forty or so young comedians and comediennes presently getting their acts together. On this particular Friday afternoon, however, they were taking those acts on the road, and on the road... Well, the wages suck there, too. $250 a weekend for the headliner, $150 for the middle act, $75 for the MC. But at least now, in 1979, there was a road. 
Veterans like Dick and Shit, who had already been at this game for four years, remembered when the only places for a young comic to get on stage were a handful of showcase clubs in New York and L.A. These hotspots, of which the club was currently the hottest, presented a score of comedians every night, offering them exposure in the country's media capitals and a place to work out in exchange for their services gratis. But as the decade drew to a close, a major new trend in the comedy boom was catching fire, the local comedy club. In cities all across the country, a new vaudeville was slouching to be born. Restaurant basements, hotel lounges, old coffee houses, even storefronts were being converted into clubs where two or three of these young comedians from New York or L.A. could be brought in each weekend to perform stand-up comedy. It was a trend that fed on itself. Encouraged by the expanding number of young comics available, clubs opened up by the score, and encouraged by all the places to work, hundreds of young men and women began to quit their day jobs. So what wasn't alike? To Buck, the recent comedy boom was the ultimate in bad luck. Because he was not part of a trend, he was one of the ones who was born to do it. He would have been a comedian in any era, and cursed the luck that he came of age just as every asshole in America who had ever gotten a laugh at a fraternity party was now crowding the field. For decades, to be a comedian had meant you were literally one in a million, as there were certainly no more than 200 professional comedians in the whole country. But now, just as he was ready to fulfill his lifelong dream, comedians were positively pullulating, breeding like mosquitoes after a wet spring in these stagnant pools they called comedy clubs. Buck laughed every time Johnny Carson brought a new comedian on The Tonight Show with the standard, comedy is the hardest commodity to find in our business introduction. Hardest commodity to find? You could barely swing a dead cat nowadays without hitting some dickhead who called himself a comedian. And the more comedians there were, the more the bargaining power of each descended. How many seats in the Washington Club, shit continued, still on his high horse. 300? Same with Philly. And they're collecting five or six at the door, plus drinks, times four shows. You figure it out. Oh, you're just pissed because you're middling for me, Buck kidded, with the mischievous glint in his eye. Blow me, Shit responded, with absolutely no glint. Shit, Buck, and Dick, you see, were on a mission of mercy this weekend, helping the novice members of the group, Chink and Fat, secure their very first out-of-town gigs as MCs in Baltimore and Washington, respectively. Unlike at the club, the MC job in an out-of-town club was the least important, consisting mainly of warming up the crowd for 15 minutes, then introducing the middle act and the headliner, who performed the bulk of the real comedy for the evening. Thus the task of local MC was normally handled by someone local, even at times by a non-comedian like the owner of the club or a hostess or Gallagher. But Buck and Shit had persuaded the owner of Shenanigans, the Baltimore club, to let Chink get his feet wet on the road in this manner, and in return for this favor they had agreed to co-headline, thereby ensuring that the show would at least have two veteran acts should Chink prove to be a disaster. Dick, being perhaps the strongest and most in-demand performer currently working in the New York comedy pool, was not asked to make a similar concession, not that Buck and Shit should have been asked to either. But if the owner of Shenanigans, Harvey Caracaris, had given a comedian something for nothing, he would have faced possible disciplinary action from the Schmucks Association, to which all club owners belonged. And in truth, Buck and Shit were happy to do it. They loved Chink and believed in him. Moreover, they enjoyed doing good, almost as much as they enjoyed the idea that they were doing good. 
children of the 60s, shit and buck, held forth on the train about the new humanity alive at the club. How different it was from the bad old days there. Why, in days gone by, the senior acts barely spoke to the rookies and certainly never gave them a helping hand. But then a revolution of kindness swept over the comic landscape behind its charismatic leader, Shit. Upon gaining his own stature at the club, Shit reached out to the tyros who came along after him. One of them was Buck, who'd arrived on the scene only a year and a half ago. Not that you'd know it by the way he carried himself. Buck was the kind of guy who could have headlined only twice before in his life and make it sound for all the world as if he was a grizzled veteran. And since he had only headlined twice before, this talent came in handy. Now, if he only had an act. An act would have been really helpful a few months earlier when Buck did his second headlining gig in Montreal. The owner there wanted an hour from the headliner, and Buck assured him an hour would be no problem. But in truth, an hour was quite a problem, because Buck did not have an hour of material. He did not have a half hour of material, but with a liberal sprinkling of where you froms, with an uncommonly receptive audience, he had been able to clock in close enough to the usual 45-minute headliner finish line to pass muster on his first headlining gig at Shenanigans. So Buck went to Montreal feeling pretty cocky. Quite a feat for a comedian who was 90% attitude and 10% act. Of course, a formula like that was right at home in the Big Apple. One colleague had already suggested that Buck bill himself as the act you're not good enough to see. Buck enjoyed that. He liked having a reputation, even if it was a bad one. And he didn't want to lose it. So when he got back to New York and everyone asked how things had gone up in Canada, he said they had gone well. Referring, apparently, to timely air service, pleasant hotel accommodations, and delightful sightseeing in the day. As for the shows, he had suffered only a bit less horribly than the crowds who had had to watch him that weekend, watch him die four slow, painful deaths. Nothing in his past experience as a comedian, and almost all of it to that point had been pretty tough, had prepared him for that.